You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 15. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. On today's episode of the show, we have an interview with Yula Kapitanakos. Yula is an associate producer for the multimedia unit at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Despite her new role in media and communications, Eula's background is in research, and we'll be talking with her about her doctoral research program, working with the vultures of Southeast Asia. Now, vultures in this part of the world have been facing very serious declines over the past century, with some Southeast Asian species having less than 100 individuals remaining in the wild. Yula gives us a breakdown of what has caused these declines and how her research has contributed to our understanding of these important birds. Yula also talks about vulture declines in India, Pakistan, and Nepal and compares these dramatic declines in vulture populations to those that have been seen in Southeast Asia. And of course, Eula's interest in film and media is of particular interest to me as a former biologist who has transitioned into my current role as filmmaker and podcast host, of course. Eula talks about what inspired this transition for her and how she hopes to affect change through filmmaking. Now, without any further delay, let's jump into this interview. producer for the multimedia unit at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Welcome to the show, Eula. Thank you so much, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. My first question for you is, uh, how did you first become interested in vultures and vulture conservation? Well, it's um, maybe not a terribly interesting story because I was, uh, you know, I never had it on the brain that I would be working with vultures. Um, They're pretty magnificent birds, but um, I actually became interested in them when I was working as a curator for um, a zoo in New York City. And uh, I knew that I had wanted to go into a graduate program to really hone my my skills as becoming a researcher. So I had a colleague who uh, used to work for the Peregrine Fund, and she suggested that maybe working with vultures um, in in Asia would be a really good starting point for my research. And uh the population of vultures in Southeast Asia um, actually became critically endangered as a result of the declines that had occurred in South Asia. And so um, there were some really good conservation programs that had been initiated in the early 2000s in Southeast Asia. And so uh, I jumped right in. And that's the, the region of the world where I really focused my research on. So why are vultures important? What, what role do they play in our ecosystems? Well, when you think of a vulture, um, I think probably the first thing that pops into everybody's mind is the idea of them scavenging dead stuff, um, dead animals. And that is their, their primary role in our ecosystem um, is to clean up this, this waste, this debris um, that could potentially be a source of pathogens. And vultures have evolved to uh, have a very powerful digestive system that can overcome these um, bacteria and um, and the various toxins that could be harmful to the environment, to other species. Um, so they're basically the, the cleanup crew. They can come in and they can very efficiently uh, clean up this, this decaying matter um, in a way that's safe for, for the entire ecosystem. 
So explain the situation that that vulture populations uh, are are facing, uh, both in uh, South Asia and, and India, but but also in Southeast Asia, which is the area where your research is focused. And, and you mentioned that there's maybe a connection between uh, vulture declines in these two different areas. Well, sure. So interestingly, the declines that happened in South Asia um, had a very different source than the declines that happened in Southeast Asia. And so some of these species that were, that were found, and by South Asia, I mean India, Nepal, and Pakistan, um, and in these countries, um, the several of the species that were found in this region extended farther east into Southeast Asia. So three of the species in Southeast Asia are also found in South Asia. And uh, those populations, we hypothesize, um, were fully connected from one part of the continent to the other. Um, over time, there's been um, a contraction of these populations. So in Southeast Asia, there's uh, the populations are actually found in very tiny pockets, mostly in Cambodia, um, as well as in Myanmar. Uh, and the Cambodia population is actually a tiny bit bigger, we think, than the, the population in Myanmar. But in both sites, they're really, really small. In South Asia, interestingly, the populations were doing really well. And um, so one species, the white-rumped vulture, was actually estimated in the tens of millions. And the reason for this is uh, that there was um, a high-quality food source for them. So because of uh, religious practices in, in, um, in these countries in South Asia, uh, cattle were not consumed, and so their carcasses were disposed of at, at these um, carcass dumping grounds, providing ample food for the vultures. And so the vulture populations actually were doing really, really well there. What happened, though, in the late in the mid nineteen nineties or so, um, was that the population started declining, and they declined really quickly. So from um, maybe you know twenty million birds, they the, the white rump, rump vulture was uh, declined to just um, in the several thousands. And this was over the course of about 20 years. And the cause was a drug that's called diclofenac, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It's basically just like the Advil or the aspirin that, that you and I would take for a headache. Um, but it found its way into uh, the, the livestock um, because the veterinary community would supply ailing animals with this drug to, to reduce inflammation. And it turned out that this drug diclofenac was extremely toxic to the vultures. And so just based on the biology of vultures where they congregate in large groups to feed on, on a carcass, you know, one cattle that had been contaminated with um, diclofenac could kill hundreds of birds at a time. And so that was the biggest problem, and that's why the, the decline happened so quickly in South Asia. Um, so basically, they declined to about 1% of their total population now. So the, the conservation folks there and the biologists are trying really hard to boost up those populations with conservation breeding programs. Um, but in the meantime, they've also made the use of diclofenac illegal as a veterinary drug. In Southeast Asia... Uh, it's more sort of your traditional uh, conservation crisis where, you know, through habitat loss and through persecution, uh, the birds have have declined over time. Um, but probably the most notable cause was the loss of food source. So um, ungulates or, or hoofstock, wild hoofstock in the area were uh, 
overhunted almost to the point of extinction. Some species were um, have gone extinct, but in the past, you know, maybe um, 70, 80 years in the last century or so, um, the ungulate populations have really been wiped out. And so as a result, the birds have lost their wild source of food. And that's primarily the cause of the declines. Um, but today, they're also uh, still facing some threats. So poisoning is a really big threat um, in Southeast Asia. And, and some researchers have pointed um, to poisoning incidents being the number one cause of declines today. Um, and this, this problem, you know, for, for some people may have heard that this problem is also really big in, uh, in countries in Africa as well. I, I guess I'm wondering what kind of relationship there is between these declines in in South Asia and in Southeast Asia. And I mean, what yeah, what is the extent of the range of these birds? I mean, are they traveling back and forth to these two different regions or are they just sort of local populations dealing with their own separate issues? Right. So that's one of the things that I wanted to see through my research was to look at the genetics of these um to uh, geographically um, differentiated populations. First, I wanted to see if they had differentiated genetically. Um, and the, the second question was, you know, are there migration events that are happening So um, between the populations? And so um, we actually don't really know for certain whether there is a lot of movement going on between the populations. There's a pretty big distance between South Asia and Southeast Asia. And Vultures, we know, can travel really, really long distances, um, but whether or not there's sufficient food resources in that sort of in-between area to support birds from moving um, great distances from one place to another, we don't really know. And so it's likely that um, these populations are actually quite regional. So I, I, I do want to jump into some of the details of your doctoral research uh, in a minute, but... Um, before we before we do that, I guess I'm wondering what effect on sort of the overall environment these really dramatic declines in vulture populations have had, uh, both in South Asia and in Southeast Asia. Yeah, well, in South Asia, there's definitely been um, some pretty dramatic increases in diseases like rabies. So as the vulture population started to crash you had this surplus of carcasses that uh, people had to figure out a way. Well, they, they actually didn't know how to get rid of all these carcasses. And so what happened as a result is you had all this excess meat that the vultures weren't eating. And so populations of rats and dogs, feral dogs, started to boom. Um, with this, you know, the, the decline in the vulture population meant that there was less competition for these food resources. And so um, India has, I think, the highest case of rabies incidences in the world, and that uh, actually increased as a result of these vulture declines. So that's probably been the most noticeable change. Um, but you also have uh, other other religious groups or other um, cultural groups that have been impacted. So the... Um, the Zoroastrian population, which doesn't believe in burying um, its dead and relied on the vultures in order to to process um, those who had died in their community, uh, were really at a loss for what to do once uh, the vultures basically disappeared. So I'm wondering what, uh, I guess I'm wondering the extent to which uh, uh, vultures have been declining in, in Southeast Asia. You gave me uh, sort of some some t statistics on the South Asia population and those dramatic declines that were seen in that region. Um, are, are the declines that have been seen in Southeast Asia, are they equally as dramatic? 
uh, they're they're actually um, they're actually more dramatic in terms of the total numbers of birds. So um, in Cambodia, through uh, visual counts that they've been doing since 2004, um, and by they I mean a very dedicated group of uh, conservation biologists um, through the Wildlife Conservation Society. And uh, they've been monitoring these birds diligently um, for months at a time out of every year annually. And uh, basically what they're finding is that for white rump vultures, um, there's probably a, there are fewer than 200 birds left in Southeast Asia. Um, and in uh, for the two other species that are found there, the slender-billed and the red-headed vultures, there's probably fewer than 75 of each species. Wow, that's that's unbelievable. Yeah, um, it's pretty dramatic. And in Myanmar, there's another small pocket um, of these three species, but that's even based on the census counts that they've done there, there's even fewer birds there. So it's it's critical that uh, these birds are protected. Yeah. So I, I do want to jump into the focus of your, your doctoral research on, on vultures in, in Southeast Asia um, at, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what questions were you hoping to answer? What, I mean, what was your sort of initial hypothesis? Sure. Well, I had sort of a two-pronged approach. One was I wanted to see um, if there was a way that we could study individual vultures without actually capturing them. So um, you probably know from some of your experience working in Africa or with the condors that vultures can actually be pretty tough to trap. Um, And especially when they're heavily persecuted in certain parts of the world, uh, they become even more uh, leery of human presence. And so um, they can be very difficult to net, and you could spend a lot of time doing this um, and actually get a very small sample size. So my goal was to try to uh, see, to try to find a way to accumulate a bigger sample size so I could study um, individual birds. And there's two things I wanted to accomplish. One is I wanted to uh, use a mark recapture method um, in order to identify individual birds within the population. And um, the way that I did that is through their gen- through their genetics. So basically, I collected feathers from um, feeding sites and vultures when they gather at carcasses, they'll, um, they'll scuffle with each other. And so feathers will drop out naturally. And you can take the DNA from these feathers and identify individual birds. Um, and so I did that for both marking and recapturing the birds where the bird's DNA served as individual tags. Um, but I also wanted to look at the genetics of the birds in order to look at how diverse, um, the, the genetic health, if you will, of the population was or is. And so the the question for the genetics is because the population is so small, they have a tendency to lose their genetic diversity. Um, and genetic diversity is really important for a population to be able to withstand environmental changes. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why um, we try to ensure that there's uh, genetic diversity within populations. But the population in Southeast Asia, we had never assessed the diversity there before. And there was concerns that because this popu- the populations of these three species is so small, that maybe they'd even be more vulnerable um, due to a loss of genetic variability. So I, I guess I'm wondering how, how unique this, this approach is towards uh, studying a population like this. Had, had, had something like this ever been done before? Not on this large of a scale. 
so this was the first study that ever used uh, feathers on such a large scale in order to acquire genetic information um, and the first one to ever use it in a mark recapture context. Okay, so what I mean, what did you discover? Uh, you know, I mean, what, what did what what did you learn about the the genetic diversity uh, within these vulture populations? Well, you know, I was I was a little surprised to be honest because um, you know I just mentioned how small the populations are, fewer than two hundred birds for for each of the species, um, and I was expecting the diversity to actually be quite low. Uh, but it turns out that the diversity is still pretty high, despite the population having shrunk um, over the last hundred years or so. And so what I ended up doing is I compared the diversity of the populations in Southeast Asia to the ones that are in South Asia, which had a much larger population. And so you would naturally expect there to be more genetic diversity in the larger population. And the levels of diversity were about the same, which was a little bit surprising to me. And I and I attribute this to the fact that um, that the birds are so long-lived. And um, so you have these birds that could potentially live, you know, 30 years or more. Um, basically, the population shrinking in size, but you still have individuals in the population. I mean, you're not you're not you're not going through so many generations that the diversity is being lost quickly, if that makes sense. So that was that was one thing. And then the second thing um, was that we found that you actually could use feathers in a mark recapture con- context. So most mark recapture is used um, is done using physical tags that are applied on the animal. Um, and so you'd put a tag on them and then you would release that animal back into the wild and you would try to recapture that that individual with the tag again. And through this recapture process, uh, you can uh, create a statistical framework where you can determine how many individuals are in a population, let's say. Um, And increasingly, people have been doing this with genetic material, uh, primarily with mammals. uh, But this was the first time that it had ever really been done to such an extent with feathers for birds. And so what we showed is that feathers are actually... um, uh, a mechanism in order to be able to track individuals in the wild as well. Fascinating. So, uh, I mean, this, it, it sounds like sort of both facets of this research, uh, you know, have um, s- some really important conservation and management implications um, for, for vultures, but also probably for, for a whole variety of, of other wildlife species. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, being able to um, not handle animals directly uh, by collecting, you know, um, genetic material that's that they leave naturally behind uh, has some really um, has some really important uh, implications. For one, you may not necessarily want to handle an animal that's endangered because of the possibilities of it getting hurt. Some animals might just be really difficult. To find, especially if their population numbers are so low and they're really cryptic, um, or animals that are nocturnal, for example, they just might be more difficult to get your hands on. Um, so, being able to study animals that are normally very difficult to capture has um, some pretty big monitoring implications, for sure. How about this? The, the the result that you came up with as far as the the genetic diversity that that exists in these vulture populations in Southeast Asia, you know mm-hmm. what what management implications does that have for ongoing efforts to 
to, to conserve these species and, and hopefully, you know, bring these population numbers, you know, back up? Sure. Well, for one thing, it's hopeful, right? So the fact that there is so much genetic diversity remaining is a really, really good thing. Um, so that gives hope that as the populations increase in size, they'll maintain that genetic diversity and, and add to it over time. Um, so it means that the populations might actually be more resilient to some environmental changes. The problem is, though, that because the populations are so small, that even like um, some chance events like a disease um, coming through the population could wipe out all the birds at one time or um, some sort of catastrophic weather event or something like that could really wreak havoc on such small populations. But from a genetic perspective, um, at least, we can be somewhat hopeful that uh, if the populations are protected and they're allowed to increase in size, um, that they could um, maintain uh, a good level of genetic health. So, I mean, I, I guess my question is, you know, uh, we've talked about these dramatic declines uh, in, in these vulture populations that, that have occurred over the last hundred or so years in Southeast Asia. I mean, how, how are these populations doing today? I mean, are, are they continuing to decline? Um, you know, what, what kind of sort of conservation efforts are, are, are being taken to, to help protect them and, and hopefully, you know, get those populations back up? Yeah, for sure. Well, like I mentioned, they, um, they, they banned the use of diclofenac in, um, in India, Nepal, and in Pakistan. And it took a while for um, the remaining, the drugs that, had, that were left behind in those countries to actually filter out um, completely. So uh, now the drug apparently is being used less frequently and the bird populations there have actually stabilized, at least based on the, the more recent census counts. So there is hope um, that these populations will have a chance to rebound. Um, there's some captive breeding programs that are in place right now in South Asia um, trying to figure out... Um, you know, if breeding birds in captivity is a viable option to help boost these populations. And so, you know, I think the most important thing was to get the drug um, out of the system. And I think that that's, that's happened now. Uh, and now if these birds are protected adequately, they, they should be able to rebound. So, but how, how about the, the Southeast Asia populations? I mean, because it, 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 it sounded like, you know, it, it wasn't the diclofenac that, that caused those declines. It was sort of a, a number of, of additional factors, including just sort of a loss of, uh, of, of biomass, you know, a decreases in, in the populations of, of large mammal species. Yeah, well, there's, um, there are conservation efforts on many fronts there as well. So the conservation groups that are working there, and there's many of them, you know, many NGOs that, that are really putting a, a valiant foot forward to try to protect not just vultures, but lots of different um, species there. So, you know, Southeast Asia has um, some of the highest biodiversity, some of the highest levels of biodiversity in the world. And, um, and so there are great strides being made in terms of um, working with local communities to try to figure out ways to help protect the biodiversity. Um, you know, but then there's issues like poverty that, that are really difficult challenges to overcome. And, uh, and so there has to be this multi-pronged approach um, to, to how species are conserved there. And sometimes it's really tough to prioritize, right? 
there's often the thought that you're picking people over nature when oftentimes by protecting nature, you're also protecting the people. And so I think these conservation groups are trying to make that clear while at the same time trying to protect on an ecosystem level um, areas that are maintaining these high levels of biodiversity. So are vulture populations in Southeast Asia, I mean, have they stabilized at this point or are they continuing to decline? Um, yeah, so we're thinking that based on the census, census counts, um, at least one of the species of the white-rumped vulture appears to have um, stabilized. Um, the red-headed vulture, though, appears to be declining. And so that might have to do a little bit more with the biology of the species and um, differences in their behavior that would make one more susceptible um, to declines or to very small population size than than the other. So we'll see. I mean, it's it's about um, continuing these monitoring programs, which is why it's so important that that we we are able to monitor these birds uh, year after year after year, so that we can get a sense of what happens over time. So we'll see. Hopefully, the the, the conservation measures that they're taking right now will uh, allow these populations to stabilize and and hopefully to increase over time. So I'm wondering if uh, the the techniques that that you uh, implemented uh, as a part of your doctoral research, um, are, are, are those techniques continuing to be used as sort of a way to continuously assess uh, these populations of vultures? Right. So that's definitely one of my recommendations um, in in the, the results of the research that, that I'm putting out right now. So I'm still actually working on um, publishing my results. And so uh, that's one of the recommendations that now that we have a baseline for um, the genetic health of the population, then they'll be able to use that as, as a baseline of sorts um, on which they can, they can evaluate uh, um, future future monitoring um results yeah and i mean it 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 seems like i mean if if all you have to do is is collect feathers at a a feeding station it seems like that's something that um you know that 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 could be continued you know uh without you know sort of a, a huge uh funding source yeah so the collection that's actually one of the really nice things is that the collection efforts are very cheap um, where, you, where it becomes a little bit more expensive is on the genetic end. And uh, fortunately, costs are going down in, in that arena as well. Um, but it's still a little bit pricey. But, you know, you can do it in a way where, especially just to look at, at the genetic diversity within a population, your sample size doesn't need to be enormous. And so um, so I, I definitely think, especially in, in that situation, uh, the use of feathers is is very viable. So I guess I'm wondering what uh, sort of what involvement you have in this issue now. Um, you know, I, I introduced you as the associate producer for the multimedia unit at Cornell <laughs> Lab Ornithology. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, what 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 you're sort of up to uh, at this point, and you know, if your current position at the Lab of Ornithology, um, if, if if that involves uh, sort of continuing these efforts in vulture research and conservation. Well, I'm a little bit out of the research realm right now. So um, as, a, as an associate producer, I'm mostly doing, um, I'm focusing my efforts on the production of conservation-related media. And one of the things that I learned as a scientist is that it's really important for people to be able to understand the work that researchers do. 
and um, and sometimes scientists have a tough time communicating their findings, you know, in a way that that the majority of people can understand or that non-scientists can understand. Um, and I think one way to really engage um, people on conservation issues through media and through really high quality, um, uh, you know, documentaries and so on. And so that's why I've switched my focus slightly um, for now into the media world so that I can really learn how to communicate these messages to a broader public uh, to really get our voices heard about some of the conservation concerns that are going out there. So am I still directly involved with vulture research? Um, I would say that I have, um, that I'm tangentially still involved. I'm still producing papers and I'm still trying to work with people, um, to develop ideas for long-term conservation measures. Um, but I have not actually been in a lab for probably the last year or so, uh, just trying and just really focusing on, on conservation communication at this point. Um, but I would love to make a film about vultures actually at some point. I think that there are species that is, or a group of animals that are very misunderstood. Um, and I'd really like people to, to sort of see the different side of vultures. Well, I mean, it's fantastic to hear. And it's, you know, I, I love hearing about stories like that, you know, uh, stories from uh, scientists, researchers, biologists, who uh, have, have sort of realized the importance of communicating their message to a, a wider audience. Um, and, you know, I, I, I sort of went through that same, uh, through that same process, you know, uh, starting out uh, working uh, in, as a field biologist um, and, and with vultures even, uh, you know, spending four years as a biologist working with the endangered California condor um, right. and then transitioning uh, you know, uh, into my current role as, you know, a filmmaker, um, podcast host. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, 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 I love hearing stories about, you know, uh, sort of the, the, the process, you know, of, uh, you know, coming to that decision of, you know, this is the area that I want to focus in, in, in this realm of, of outreach and education and reaching out to, to the general public with, with this message. Um, so I wonder what, uh, you know, what, what was it? Was there something specific that inspired you to sort of change, uh, change course there? Well, I wasn't, I don't think it was anything specific. I think it was just a buildup over time of seeing, um, that, you know, conservation measures were really struggling to a certain extent um, because, you know, the science is there on so many levels. It's just it's not being communicated um, in a way that is influencing policy, for example, and not not that necessarily politicians are always going to to look to the best science in order to inform their decisions. But um, but I think despite that scientists really have an obligation to communicate their their research in a way that that can be used for for advocacy or for um, for policy issues and uh, and I'm extremely passionate about conservation and so um, I you know a combination of um, of a research background and a solid communication uh, foundation I think is is critical in order to to have uh, the voice of science be heard. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely in agreement with you on that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'm wondering if, I mean, are are, are you or, or other folks at the Lab of Ornithology, uh, I mean, are, are you guys working on producing, uh, you know, sort of media content in an effort to uh, address these issues of vulture conservation in um, throughout Asia? Well, not specifically vultures at the moment, although, um, you know, I do have a, a little bit of a plot to try to convince my boss to uh, potentially do a film on vultures in the in the future. Um, but right now we've got a couple of pretty big projects uh, focusing on some other endangered species, one being the Philippine eagle, which is the most um, endangered eagle in the world. So we're making a, a full-length documentary on that species. Um, and we've also uh, are just in the process of wrapping up another documentary on um, on the sagebrush grouse, so um, on, on the sagebrush ecosystem in, in general, and then uh, having as the main character the sage grouse. Fantastic. Well, that's neat yeah. here. Yeah, we- yeah. Lots of other smaller projects um, underway as well, but uh, some some really beautiful things to keep um, your eyes open for. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to, uh, as a way to sort of wrap things up here, um, I'm, I'm wondering if there is anything that you can point to that folks, you know, living outside of uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia, um, you know, folks who don't live in these these parts of the world that, you know, are, are being directly affected by vulture declines. Um, is, is there anything you can point to of ways for folks to sort of help uh, with vulture conservation in these areas? Um, may, maybe ways for folks to, to sort of inform others about the issue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a few things that you can do. Um, one is you can dig into your pockets and help financially support these conservation groups that are, um, you know, really, really um, making their best efforts to try to preserve these species. And so, you know, conservation groups are always looking for donations. And so the more we can support them financially, the better. Um, I think staying informed. So even just if you just, um, you know, Google uh, vulture declines, you'll get a bunch of different sites um, that will discuss what the what the issues are and ways that you could potentially help. Um, another way that you could do it is through ecotourism, you know, actually going to these countries and um, not only supporting the conservation organizations that are um, trying to combat these declines, but um, by providing ecotourist dollars as well. You're, you're not only supporting um, the conservation causes, but also the communities around them um, that are also reliant on these environments. Fantastic. Um, and, and I guess I guess the next thing I'm wondering is, you know, are, are there any sort of universal steps that, that people can take to uh, protect, protect vultures wherever it is that, that they may live? Yeah, I mean, I think the same thing that protects vultures can protect a lot of other species. So um, reducing your consumption, you know, uh, a lot of deforestation occurs um, in order to export wood out of these countries. And so uh, being really mindful of where your where your lumber or where your wood products come from, I think, is is a great first step. Um, and uh, that's in terms of tr- conserving tropical forests, I think that's probably one of the key ones. You know, another thing that people aren't really familiar with is the the process of deforestation due to um, uh, tropical oils like palm oil and coconut oil. So coconuts are a really, really big fad now, right, in terms of coconut water and, and whatnot. 
Um, but a lot of these coconut trees are actually planted in, in uh, tropical regions. And so, you know, being, being mindful of, of those products as well, I think, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will definitely be uh, putting up uh, some additional resources and some links, uh, you know, providing some more information on on your research and also some of these issues that we've been been discussing on the show notes page for this episode so that folks can... That's great. Yeah, so folks can check that out and and, uh, uh, sort of have an easy way to learn more about um, all these issues that we've been discussing. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the program, Eula, and sharing all of this fantastic information. And thanks for all the really important work that you're doing to protect vultures. Oh, thanks so much. And, uh, it's really nice to talk to a fellow vulture lover. So, um, it's been my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, Matt. All right. That was our interview with Eula Kapitanakos from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I certainly share her sentiment that it is always enjoyable for me to talk with other people who share a passion for vultures. This interview was particularly fascinating for me because I knew very little about the status of vulture populations in Southeast Asia before talking with Eula. And I'm honestly blown away by how severe population declines have been in this part of the world. Less than 100 individuals in the red-headed vulture and slender-billed vulture populations in this region... Despite this, it is truly amazing, as Eula explains, that these birds have retained such high levels of genetic diversity, despite these extraordinarily low population levels. Luckily for us, Eula has provided some excellent tips on how to help conserve these vultures of Southeast Asia, no matter where we happen to live, contributing funds to conservation organizations that are involved in vulture conservation in this region is certainly an important way to help, and we'll have links to some of these groups that are actively involved in this issue up on the show notes page. Eula also talked about how important it is to be mindful of the products that you are purchasing and consuming. The clearing of forests for harvesting tropical hardwoods is a big problem for many wildlife species in this region, So if you're going to purchase lumber for a construction project, be mindful of where that wood is coming from. Additionally, vast tracts of tropical forests in Southeast Asia are being cleared to create palm and coconut plantations to fuel an increasing demand for palm oil, coconut oil, and other products derived from these crops. Of course, these issues affect more than just vulture populations. So think twice before buying products that contain palm oil. And if you're going to buy coconut oil, coconut water, or other coconut-derived products, uh, be sure to look for products that are fair trade certified. We'll have links with additional information on all of these issues faced by the tropical forests of Southeast Asia up on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC15. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC15. Thanks to everyone for listening today. We have another vulture-themed episode coming your way next Wednesday, and the Birds and the Beats will be returning with a brand new beat from the talented Ben Mirren. This episode was produced by myself, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by the Beatles. 